Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. The big questions... The big questions of life. I grew up in a, a family. My dad was a Buddhist. My mom was uh, both heavily into Freudian psychoanalysis, and she had a great love of existentialism. I was imbued in these different philosophies in my family system, and uh, so much so that by the time I was uh, third grade, when I was eight years old, I remember I got in a lot of trouble for lecturing another child about uh, atheism. (laughs) And my mom had to, uh, I was actually suspended from school from, uh, from getting angry at at another kid who uh, was, uh, I guess, a true believer. And I was lecturing this other child when I was eight. It was uh, a philosophy that was deeply, prevalent in the dinner table. So tonight I'm going to talk about existential psychology and some of the insights of it, and then uh, compare it a little bit with insights of the Buddha, and then we'll do a meditation that will tie in thematically with the talk, find a comfortable seat, and here we go. Traditional psychological modalities generally focus on locating suffering and distress as within each individual's unique psyche or self. Our personal history of traumas, our early life experiences, our repressed drives, our individual, you know, experiences... And they're predisposed to focusing on our specific pathologies. In traditional psychological practice, there's an emphasis on diagnosis, which essentially marks distress as an individual's issue. And existentialist philosophy and psychology is very different in that it explores distress as a byproduct of universal challenges that are transpersonal, i.e. not about each individual specific, unique uh, traumas, stresses, pathologies, uh, diagnosis. It's interested in how people address the big questions of life. What is the meaning of my life? What's my true purpose? Uh, What is the nature of my identity? How should I relate to death, my finiteness, and so forth? So uh, it focuses on our philosophy of living, and much less so on our personal symptoms. And that's just worth noting up front, that uh, existentialism is less interested in unearthing the specific individual uh, abandonments or uh, psychological events, 
it's more an exploration of how each person comes to grips with the large universal transpersonal questions that each of us have to face. So there's some basic foundations of existentialist thought that are both profound and um, in many ways overlap with Buddhist philosophy. Um, and uh, I think are worth knowing about the givens of existence from this perspective is that we're all born or as existentialists say, we're thrown into the world without any predetermined role or utility. So for example, um, I'll just use this, a pen has a purpose. It has ink and uh, I don't wanna look like this is an advertisement for a pen, but a pen has a purpose, it has utility, it has a function. Its function is to be used to write something. Um, but from an existentialist perspective, uh, human beings don't have any designer that gave us a predetermined purpose. Uh, we are all born without any predetermined role or inherent role to play. This is a very different perspective than most of uh, philosophy ever since Aristotle. For Aristotle, as I recall, he, uh, mo morality was based on the idea that we have an inherent purpose and that the good life is to fulfill our true potential as rational, logical beings. From that perspective, um, Aristotle was what's called an essentialist. He believed that human beings have an essential purpose divinely or built into us. But for the existentialists, there is no predetermined role we play. And so in from the very foundations of existentialist thought is that it's radically atheistic denying any God, universe, idea of fate, denying that there's any sort of role or, you know, that uh, has been set out for us, that we're thrown into existence with all these strange cultures and societies and family systems. We're thrown into this world without being asked for it, and we're thrown in without any really a pre-designed reason for our existence. And so from an existentialist perspective, we define ourselves in every small and large choice that we make, given that we have no uh, designed or pre-established purpose. It's we give our lives meaning in everything that we do, every choice we make, every action we take, that's what defines our life, period, end of sentence. We're not trying to, in our lives, uncover. If you try to uncover what your true role or destiny is, you won't find it. From an existentialist perspective, it's simply 
how you you act, how you choose that defines who you are. Despite being thrown into, you know, the culture we find are in, the social structures, the family systems, the relationships, and all of the beliefs and opinions and views of the people around us from an existentialist perspective to live authentically is to, we have to take responsibility for our choices, even though there's so many constraints placed on us, so many influences by others, ultimately from an existentialist perspective, each individual defines themselves by the choices they make. Each individual is responsible for their choices. And that's a heavy load because our entire, the entire meaning of our life is enacted or generated or results from these choices that we make every day of our lives. Despite all the constraints um, that we live under, to have any sense of freedom or agency or even to have any claim of, of ownership of our life, we must take responsibility for our choices. Now, it goes even further than that. I mean, that's already pretty profound in its own way. For Nietzsche and Camus, two, of course, very important existential uh, uh, philosophers, it's only through doubting and being willing to disregard the traditions and the beliefs of the culture around us and the passed down beliefs, things like patriotism, blind faith in religion, the idea that uh, people's worth is defined by how much money they make and all that. We have to disregard all of the, the views and opinions of those around us if we are to live authentically. The only way to be authentic is to question everything. In fact, and here's where um, there's this massive divergence between existentialism and Judeo-Christian thought. In existentialism, to be fallen is to live inauthentically and to live on in authentically or to live as existentialists say in bad faith is to fall in line to believe what other people believe unquestioningly, to simply adapt the cultural uh, beliefs, follow you know, what everybody else does. And that contrasts so starkly with Judeo-Christian views where to be fallen is to question the, the dogma, to question the uh, message or the teachings of God to be fallen is to uh, is to uh, look at everything with doubt. In fact, doubt is considered to be <laughs> not a, a positive state in Judeo traditional Judeo-Christian philosophy. Whereas in existentialism, that's it's the entire point is to be radically doubting 
and to investigate everything and see, is this really true for me? Now, given that our lives are defined by our choices, yet there's no way of knowing how they'll pan out, you know, given that our entire identity and the meaning of our life depends on these choices that we make, uh, but they're often guesses, uh, according to uh, existentialist thinkers from uh, Kierkegaard on, um, it means that existential anxiety or angst, as some call it, is inevitable. There's so much at stake in the sense that we're defining ourselves with every choice we make, yet we don't know how those choices will pan out. Sometimes we're just flying by the seat of our pants. So if you're living authentically, if you know the fact that you are defining yourself and giving the purpose or meaning of your life in each mundane choice you make, then for existentialists, there's an inevitable degree of anxiety that will result. Kierkegaard taught that anxiety is a guide, not a pathology often. And this goes against, you know, traditional 20th century, 21st century uh, psychology, which views anxiety as a pathology. Anxiety, we have, of course, medications, benzodiazepines and serotonin reuptake inhibitors and all that to address anxiety disorders. And I don't think existentialists would argue that in many cases, anxiety is something that definitely deserves to be treated. But unlike traditional psychology and existentialists view, certain kinds of anxiety is a, a positive outcome. It means we are um, recognizing the stakes that um, we're aware of the implications of living an existence which has no pre-designed purpose or that there's no, there's nothing watching over us and that it's only in our actions that we define ourselves. It's uh, in other words, anxiety means you're fully conscious. <laughs> so it's um, it, it, in this way, existentialism also differs from a lot of traditional thought. Um, if we have the question, if we have the courage to question our beliefs and to bear um, the unsettledness, the anxiety, the angst that not knowing how our choices will play out, um, then from this perspective, we're living an authentic, meaningful life. Uh, as Kierkegaard said, something like, whoever has learned to live with anxiety the right way has achieved the ultimate. <laughs> so he had a high view of uh, anxiety. Um, so let's review for a moment where we are, because I've just, I've dumped a lot on you. Um, there's a lot of paradoxes here, which is one, that despite all the limitations of being in a world of other people, uh, 
To have any experience of freedom and meaning, we must make choices, not just go with the flow, because those choices define what the meaning of our life is. Um, and two, therefore, to have any real awakeness or uh, understanding of existence entails that we will experience anxiety. And three, uh, we need to exert our freedom through individual choices, yet at the same time, we need to relate and coexist with others Yet without, and from an existentialist perspective, we need to coexist. We need to depend on other people. We're interdependent. Yet at the same time, we have to make our own choices and we cannot be overly influenced by others if we're to be authentic. So that's pretty paradoxical there. So um, the other huge issue from an existentialist perspective that really bears understanding is the importance of understanding mortality and the role that it plays in living an authentic life. Um, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, a massively influential philosopher of the early 20th century, um, felt that for us to become truly aware of the reality of our existence and to make authentic choices which truly define us. To live authentically means we, every choice has to be made with um, bearing in mind the fact that we have a finite amount of time, that we will die. And for Heidegger, any choice that's made with uh, the denial of death, and the denial of death can simply mean we're making choices and we're not acknowledging that these choices have implications on how we spend our time. If we make choices without reflecting on the fact that uh, as finite beings with only a finite amount of time, each choice is going to take up some of our life. And therefore, an authentic choice must in some way come with the reflection of, as I look back on my life in the future, uh, when my time is really running out, will I be proud that I made this choice? Um, Heidegger called this being towards death. And he said that when people, you know, the least favorite times we have in our life is when we become aware of our own fragility, when somebody we know uh, is in a serious injury or dies, uh, or we have a near-death experience and we become radically aware of the fragility of our own existence. For most of us, that's, that's you know, obviously a traumatic experience and it's an unpleasant one, but for Heidegger, that's the time in many ways that we become most authentic because those times when we really come up close to the radical fragility of each life, our life and the life of everyone else, when we really bear that in mind, that's when we start to make really authentic choices. And we see that when people have 
serious illnesses or near-death experiences, those are the times they sometimes will pull back from working too much or from chasing just financial security at the expense of everything else in their life. When we have near-death experiences or we lose someone, those are the times we overlook the petty details and the little squabbles and conflicts of our life. And we really become caught up in asking ourselves, what's really meaningful for me in my life right now? What, does, what really gives my life a sense of meaning? And so I think that Heidegger was really onto something there that um, only when we are reflecting on our own mortality, do we really make authentic choices? And so, of course, existential anxiety is not just the fact that we're defining ourselves by our choices, but also the fact that um, in every decision from his perspective, we have to acknowledge our finiteness, our ever dwindling amount of time. And I'm going to summarize this review of existentialism by saying that uh, given the stakes, um, the ultimate goal of existentialism is to experience what's called uh, in the Heideggerian term care, in that every moment we're faced with choices that define us if we're not completely awake, sober, and connected with our experience then and reflectant on our own mortality, then we become inauthentic. And in that moment, we're depriving our lives of meaning. So care is to really, really care about each moment of our lives and the implications of every choice we make. So that's a a fast summary of some of the core foundations of existentialist belief. Now, of course, as um, I'm also, besides being someone who grew up in a household where existentialism was important and so was psychology, but I'm also a Buddhist, a Buddhist pastor. So I would like to, to note some of the similarities and difference between the Buddha and existentialism. Now, one of the obvious overlaps is that um, what's called the Charter of Free Inquiry in Buddhism, known as the Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha uh, goes to teach this group of people called the Kalamas. And the Kalamas are people who've been preached to by every imaginable uh, teacher of the time just comes through and each teacher that comes through to teach, to teach the Kalama says that the previous teacher was wrong and not, and to disregard what that teacher said and to believe this person. And then the next teacher would come through and say, no, what that person said was not right. Believe what I say. And so finally, by the time the Buddha arrives, these people are understandably doubting. They're understandably uh, unimpressed. They're understandably hesitant to believe uh, anything that the Buddha says because they've had so many 
lectures by so many different teachers. And so they asked the Buddha, why should we uh, believe you? And the Buddha says something that's very uh, stunning for a spiritual teacher. I'm going to read a little bit of my translation from it. There's many translations. But the Buddha essentially says, don't believe what you've heard. Don't believe what's traditional. Don't believe what's in holy books. Don't believe what's taught to be common sense. Don't believe what any spiritual teacher, myself included, says. It's only when you see for yourself that an act is harmful that you should abandon it. And it's only when you see for yourself that an act is beneficial that you should embrace it or continue acting on its behalf. So this is a profoundly existentialist statement of the Buddha. He's saying to question everything, to not believe the hearsay, the common sense, the, the traditions of one's culture, to see for yourself, is this really, when I act this way, does it make me feel good? Does this feel right for me? Does it make me feel, when after I act this way and I look back, do I feel a sense of pride or do I send, feel a sense of guilt or shame or disappointment? And the Buddha goes on to say in the Sutta, if you really see for yourself, if you really like deeply reflect, you'll see that if you act harmfully, that it doesn't make you feel good and it doesn't make you feel that you're living in the right path. And therefore that's an act that you should abandon. Um, so the Buddha, like Heidegger, emphasized that questioning or like all existentialists, the Buddha emphasized that questioning and seeing for oneself and not uh, just blindly following what's taught is an essential fabric or component of uh, a true authentic existence. The, like Heidegger, the Buddha also taught that our actions should be made in light of our own mortality. Uh, recollection of one's death, which is known in Buddhism as marana sati, um, is a very, very important practice. It's taught that the daily reflections that every Buddhist should undertake to live a truly spiritual life is to repeat the marana sati phrases, which is, I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. I will be separated from the loved, from those I love. And the only thing I truly own are the quality of my actions. And that last statement, the only thing I truly own are the quality of my actions, is the most existential statement imaginable. The Buddha is saying that what defines ourselves are our choices, our actions, and nothing else. We don't have any innate badness or goodness that we are defined by how we act. Now, if we simply stop there, it might seem that Buddhism and existentialism were very much the same. But there's 
some significant differences that I'd like to know. Um, unlike existentialism, the Buddha believed that anxiety was not inevitable nor necessarily the indication that we were living an authentic life. In fact, the Buddha believed that the whole point of emphasizing meditation and all the practices therein was to liberate us from anxiety, otherwise known as dukkha or suffering. That a relief from anxiety could be achieved through the internal awareness of our inner states, our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts, to be capable of self-soothing. And so the Buddha did not believe that simply being anxious about one's choices was necessary nor an essential outcome of the truly awake life. The Buddha believed that part of the entire practice of meditation was to alleviate anxiety so that we could continue to make choices without having all of this heavy what dread or angst that the existentialists so, uh, were so enamored with. Also, unlike um, Sartre and other existentialists, the Buddha was not anti-essentialist. He believed that human beings did have an underlying purpose, an underlying function, and that we were, to the Buddha, we are radically social beings dependent on each other, and for the Buddha, everything depended on our ability to connect in a healthy, harmless, beneficial way with each other. And the Buddha teaches that the entire path and the entire point of life is in what he called Kalyanamita, the ability to learn how to interact with others in an enriching way. I would argue a co-regulating way where we mutually uh, limbically regulate our nervous systems and our emotional affects and so forth. So I don't believe the Buddha believed that we're thrown into a, a purposeless universe where we have to define ourselves from get-go. I believe that to a certain degree, he believed that we did have a function, although the Buddha also believes that we also are constantly defining ourselves by our actions as well. Now, lastly, before we end this talk, um, there are some pretty strong arguments today against being an existentialist. Um, the existentialists, of course, believe that as we are defined by our choices, they believe that uh, existentialists like Sartre tended to really focus on our cognitive rational faculties as a, the essential part of ourselves and believed that everybody should be accountable for the choices they make. But today we live in a landscape where many, many countless neuropsychologists and clinical psychologists have shown that actually the mind is not a particularly rational or cognitive environment, that 
Uh, our choices are constrained by countless biological, unconscious priming and stimuli, hormonal shifts, genetics, evolutionarily instilled behaviors, early attachment experiences, the unconscious regions of the brain, and so forth and so on. If you read the work of Sapolsky in his mammoth and wonderful book, Behave, by the time you get to the end of the book, you really doubt that there is anything remotely like free will or even that our choices have much of a conscious tinge to them at all. So from this perspective, um, it really casts a significant uh, you know, stumbling block to simply try to embrace all the tenets of existentialism. Given all that, still I believe that there's much to embrace in existentialist thought. First and foremost for me, growing up as a punk, somebody outside of the dominant culture, you know, uh, for me, the subculture questioning everything around us, not falling in line with the dominant hegemonic ideological beliefs, to me has exceedingly exceeding value. And also for me, um, the willingness to see, uh, to not believe that there's some kind of predetermined purpose and that our lives should simply be trying to find that, but. Uh, but instead being radically awake and paying attention to each moment and each choice that we make, I believe that that's fundamentally of value. And I also believe that Heidegger and the Buddha's emphasis on reflecting on mortality in a positive way to weigh, are our choices really something that would matter if tomorrow we were dead, would we really, or if I look back in the future, um, on my life and the things I did today, would I really be happy? Would I really think that was a good way to spend my life? So um, with that, I'd like us to do a meditation together based on some of these ideas. And I also thank you for listening. And um, so find a really comfortable seated position, if you will, of course, as I always mention, if you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, uh, the Venmo is Dharma P-U-N-X N-Y-C. Or if you'd like to, uh, if you're capable, that is, if you have the resource to support my work, or uh, the, the PayPal is on the Dharma Punks N-Y-C website, the PayPal button. So thank you for that. And... Um, but even if you don't, you can't support my work, you're always welcome and always, uh, I'm, I fundamentally just love that you're here. So let's close our eyes and just find a really relaxed, comfortable, upright position. And just... Try to bring your attention from the outside world and from any issues that happened earlier or might happen in the future. And just try to bring your awareness to 
the actual sensations that are happening right now not adding anything to our experience in terms of thought or images that we're going to add. We're just going to pay attention to the sensations that are occurring. Sensations can be sounds arriving from outside, or it can be sensations that are internal, feelings of tightness or clenching in the body, feelings of pulsing, vibration, feelings of gas or liquidity or heaviness or numbness. Noticing the quality of the mind, is the mind jumpy? Can you, you settle your attention on your internal experience or do you find it jumping almost immediately to uh, some topic, some issue that's unresolved in your life, some previous interaction with someone? Or can you settle into your internal sensations without too much difficulty? Does the mind feel really spacious? Like you can hear and sense a lot of things happening both internally and externally? Or does the mind feel very claustrophobic and tight? Like you're only aware of one small area of sensation in the body maybe a pain in the back or a, a, a tightness in the belly or maybe there's just a single thought that's grabbed hold of your awareness. So let's Just see if we can start with the top of the head, the forehead, and just use your breath as you breathe in to become aware of this area of your body. And then as you release your breath, just release any uh, furrow furrowing of the brow. And you might feel sometimes uh, tight muscles in the forehead, bringing awareness to the eyes and breathing into the eyes to become aware of the sensations of the micro muscles around the eyes, the feeling of the eyes themselves. And then as we breathe out to see if we can encourage the eyes to settle into the eye sockets. If we can influence the eyes to move less behind the eyelids, if we can encourage the eyes to settle, to not bounce around, then the mind will follow 
the optic nerves actually play a significant influence on the release of neurotransmitters, especially norepinephrine, acetylcholine. So just relaxing that area of the body and the mind will follow. Bringing awareness to the mouth. As we breathe in, just become aware of uh, is the mouth, does the mouth feel pinched, like the lips pinched and tight, or do they feel relaxed, long, the corner of the mouth spread apart? And then releasing the breath. With releasing the breath, try to just allow the mouth to settle into a very comfortable position. And of course, if a unforced smile is available that can help influence the mind as well but if you're forcing it that's not going to work if you don't feel like uh forming a half smile if that feels inauthentic don't do it just allow your face to take whatever feels like the natural relaxed position and then releasing any clenching in the jaw. Breathing into the back of the neck, bringing awareness to it. And then as we release, release any tightness, breathing in again to that area. Breathing out, releasing any tightness in the neck. Breathing into the front of the neck, becoming aware of the sensations there. Breathing out, releasing any tightness. And then Moving to the shoulders, if you like, breathe in and lift the shoulders up. And then as you breathe out, release the shoulders back, rotating them back and dropping them so you open up the chest. Breathing into the abdomen as you breathe in, just imagine your belly expanding like you're bringing the breath directly into the belly and then as you breathe out releasing breathing into the left hand into the as you breathe in you can make a fist and tighten the muscles and then as you breathe out relax and release when we clench and release muscles that really uh, removes the action potential, the underlying stress that builds up in muscles. So doing the same to the right hand, breathe in, clench, making tight fists, even the tight arm and elbow, and then releasing. And then just continue moving down the body, the sit bones, buttocks, thighs, 
calves, feet, anywhere else I might have uh, passed over. And just use your inhalation to become aware of each area of your body. And then the exhalation is a time to release as if the breath could just release any tightness. And every time your mind wanders away, which is entirely normal, it's the nature of the mind to pursue opportunities and threats. And when we're simply sitting and bringing our attention inwards, the mind will then continue to look for threats and opportunities and thoughts about the future or the past. And so our job is simply to keep very patiently again and again and again, bringing our awareness back. Even if you do it a hundred times, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong. The practice is in coming home, not in judging ourselves. Coming home to the body.
Nowhere to go, nothing to do. Just coming to a complete stop in life. Bringing our full attention now to the, either the sounds arriving, not reacting to sounds or silence, just listening to each sound arriving at the gateway of hearing or bringing your awareness to the sensations of breathing in your body, trying to incline your breath to ease your body. If you're tired, focus on breathing in. If you want to settle in and relax, focus on extending the length of your out-breaths, making them really smooth and long. So Buddha noted just knowing if we're breathing in, knowing if we're breathing out, knowing if we're breathing quickly or long breaths. So now I invite you to bring to mind some decision or choice that you might 
be making or that might make in the near future could be a choice about a job or where we live or about a relationship or a choice about even small choices about uh, just the smaller issues in life. It doesn't have to be big. Could be a choice about whether to purchase something or uh, whether to spend money or not, or uh, whether to travel or not. Uh, any choice, really, just for the purposes of this exercise, this meditation practice. So just see if you can bring to mind this choice and know what it is. And even if you could know what the, uh, not just what the decision you'll be facing is, but if you know some of the possible candidates for the decision you might make, just bear those in mind. So now that we have that in mind, we're going to practice the Marana Sati, recollections of our own finiteness or mortality, recollections of our, the inevitability of one's death. And we're simply going to just start by reciting in our minds the five phrases the Buddha instructed each practitioner to remember or recollect on each day. I am of the nature to grow old. This is, of course, true. So just reciting that phrase or any phrase that carries the same idea, I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to experience sickness and illness. I am of the nature to experience sickness and illness. I am of the nature to die. My life will end. I will be separated from the loved people, places, things. I will be separated from all that is dear. It's the inevitable uh, outcome.
And then finally, all that I really own are the quality of my actions, the choices that I make. In essence, they are what define me. Continuing with this reflection, breathing in, take a nice full in-breath, and then a nice full out-breath, aware of the sensations of breathing, and just remind yourself one day this body will breathe no more. One day I will take a final breath. Breathing in. Breathing out, one day this body will breathe no more. Imagining ourselves in the distant or the future facing our mortality, looking back at this time of our life and asking ourselves, what choices would I really feel good about? What choice would I feel really good about as a worthwhile way that I spent my time. If this is difficult, you might at first ask yourself, looking back at my life right now, from where I am right now, what choices have I made that I feel the most pride, the most, were the most fulfilling, was it a decision to educate myself, travel, reach out and connect to a different community? Was it something I created? Was it some act of service? Looking back on my life, what decisions have I made that I feel I would like to be defined by? And then lastly, knowing this, again, visualizing a scenario in the future where you're looking back on your life at this point of your life today and just see if you can unearth some clarity 
as to how to approach that first decision I asked you to bring to mind that you're facing, knowing, reflecting on our mortality, our limited amount of time, on what choices have brought us a sense of fulfillment in the past, what decisions should we make? And with that, I'm going to ring the bowl. Thank you for your practice.